Blog Talk Radio. Mama 
Mamba Mubiai, Mulubawaki Tanta. Wawaka Yembe, Wena Menshi. of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Saturday, uh, December the 11th, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the European Union announcement that it is launching its own international project to compete with the China-led Belt and Road Initiative. Also, South African physicians are saying that most cases of the Omicron COVID-19 variant are of a mild nature. The Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, has echoed uh, a long-standing demand for the continent to have a permanent seat on the United Nations Security Council. And some uh, South Sudanese business leaders have been targeted for sanctions uh, by the United States. In the second hour, we listen to a briefing from the African Center for Disease Control and Prevention Director General, Dr. John Nkangasone, 
on the status uh, of the pandemic and the vaccination rollouts across Africa. Finally, we review some of the most pressing and burning issues on the continent today and around the world. Stay tuned uh, for this and other features. We'll take a musical interlude uh, with Lucky Dubé uh, from the album entitled Victims uh, from uh, the Republic of South Africa. Let's listen in.
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, that was uh, music from the legendary uh, Lucky Dubé uh, from uh, South Africa. That was uh, from the album, the entire album entitled Victims. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. Our lead story uh, deals with a new initiative uh, announced uh, by uh, the European Union. Uh, the European Union has unveiled its 300-euro uh, billion alternative uh, to China's Belt and Road Initiative, an investment program the bloc claims will create, quote, links, not dependencies, unquote. Now, this uh, 340 million 340 billion U.S. dollars uh, program uh, has the aim of the EU program called Global Gateway. It is to help underpin the global recovery uh, by mobilizing investments in digital, clean energy, and transport networks, as well as boosting health, education, and research systems across the world. Low- and middle-income countries were already facing a 2.7 2.7 trillion US dollar infrastructure investment gap before the pandemic started. That's according to World Bank estimates. With the Global Gateway, uh, we want to create strong and sustainable links, uh, not dependencies, between Europe and the world and build a new future for young people. That's according to Jada Erpelian, uh, the, United, uh, the European Union Commissioner for International Partnerships, and they said this in a statement uh, earlier in the week. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said the plan offered a true alternative to China's global infrastructure program, uh, which has been accused of saddling some countries with huge debts since its inception in 2013. Von der Leyen uh, said that countries need better and different offers uh, of finance and that the European Union plan, uh, which will make investments over the next six years, will not build up unsustainable debt and levels uh, in partner countries. Uh, they know we are transparent. They know it is accompanied by good governance, uh, von der Lehan said. Over the past few years, China has poured billions uh, into building roads, uh, railways, and ports worldwide to forge uh, new trade links and diplomatic ties. As of March of 2021, 139 countries had signed up to Beijing's initiative, accounting for 40% of the global gross domestic product, according to the Council on Foreign Relations, a U.S. think tank. The European alternative to China's Belt and Road will be financed uh, by a mix of 18 billion euros, that is uh, 20 billion U.S. dollars in grants, and uh, 317 billion U.S. dollars in investments uh, from member states their development banks, the private sector, and European Union financing bodies, including the European Investment Bank, the European Commission said in a statement. The Commission also said that it was considering the creation of a new credit facility for European countries selling into markets outside of the EU, which would help them compete uh, with businesses receiving hefty government subsidies. Uh, Here's how the plan would break down. There would be uh, digitization. Uh, The European Union will invest in fiber optic cables between countries, satellite communications, and cloud infrastructure to better facilitate global cooperation, data sharing, and artificial intelligence development. It will provide an additional 
$17 million uh, U.S. million to a program that aims to extend work on a 35,000-kilometer uh, high-speed fiber optic network uh, to the rest of Latin America. It also claims to be uh, in support of clean energy. The bloc plans to integrate its energy systems, transition to renewable, and, and partner with other countries to boost renewable hydrogen production. Uh, it will also work to eliminate barriers to the international trade of hydrogen. It has committed uh, $2.7 billion in grants to sub-Saharan Africa, $1.2 billion uh, in grants to North Africa to boost renewable energy production and uh, energy efficiency. Also, it deals with transport, and uh, this is perhaps the most direct challenge to China's initiative. The European Union will also invest in transport infrastructure, uh, that is railways, roads, ports, airports, and border crossings to help develop countries and diversify their chain supplies. Uh, it also uh, would provide an additional $5.2 billion towards sustainable transport links, including establishing a trans-Mediterranean network connecting North African countries to the bloc. It also talks about health care. Uh, in response to the pandemic, the new European Union plan aims to help countries develop local vaccine manufacturing capacity and diversity um, and diversify uh, their pharmaceutical supply chains. It did not offer specific funding targets, but earmarked Africa as a priority and said it will collaborate with the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And also, uh, it says it has an initiative related to education and research. The European Union wants to further invest in education globally, including the expansion of online learning uh, through talent partnerships. It will offer a pathway for young professionals to move to Europe for work or training and inject an additional $453 million into its signature Erasmus Plus Study Exchange Program. In other news, uh, in South Africa, as the Omicron variant sweeps through the country, Dr. Unben Pele is seeing dozens of sick patients a day, yet he hasn't had to send anyone to the hospital. Uh, that's one of the reasons why he, along with other doctors and medical experts, suspect that the Omicron version really is causing milder COVID-19 uh, symptoms than Delta variants, uh, even if it, it seems to be spreading faster. Uh, Palais said that they are able to manage the disease at home. Most have recovered within 10 to 14 days of isolation. And that includes older patients and those with health problems that can make them more vulnerable to becoming severely ill from a coronavirus infection, he said. Uh, in the two weeks since Omicron first uh, re was reported in Southern Africa, other doctors have shared similar stories, all cautioned that it will take many more weeks to collect enough data to be sure their observation and the early evidence offers some clues. And uh, we'll have uh, more detailed information uh, on uh, the COVID-19 uh, Omicron variant and other variants uh, on the African continent uh, in the following uh, segment uh, through a briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In the Horn of African Nation of Ethiopia, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has recently stated, quote, I join other African leaders in reiterating 
that a continent of around 1.3 billion people needs a permanent voice and seat at the United Nations Security Council, uh, represented through a block. Issues and decisions that concern the continent cannot continue being addressed without continental representation. Fortunately, almost all Africans would argue in favor of the assertion of the Prime Minister, particularly Ethiopia as a founding member of both the United Nations and the African Union, has been speaking for the cause of Africa as well. It is possible to understand the multitudinous loss Africa endured for it could not have a permanent voice or seat at the Security Council. Because of this, Africa in general, Ethiopia in particular, could not exercise their rights in making African decisions. Unfortunately, all decisions that concern Africa have been made by the Western leaders that have inevitably affected Africa, even if it would not be proper to deduce that today's problems uh, African nations are struggling with, the result of irrelevant decisions made by certain irresponsible Western leaders. Assuredly, uh, decisions uh, made and exported to Africa by some Western leaders undeniably resulted in crises, loss, and recruitment conflicts. The United Nations uh, must be a platform where equality and fraternity is practically reflected. Now, matters that directly affect the people of Africa should not fall in the hands of a few uh, who rather have limitations in understanding the socioeconomic and cultural realities on the ground. The best interests of Africans can only be served with the participation of Africans on uh, their own. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, taking place uh, in the Republic of South Sudan, and of course uh, South Sudan is uh, Africa and the world's newest uh, nation state having come into existence uh, a decade ago, uh, in uh, 2011, of course, they too are being targeted uh, with sanctions uh, from the United States. Uh, this is due uh, to business dealings, uh, which uh, the United States has identified as being uh, also connected uh, to the presidency of uh, the leader, uh, President uh, Salva Kiir. And of course, uh, this uh, story uh, broke uh, just recently in uh, the Sudan uh, Tribune, it said that the United States uh, Department of the Treasury on Thursday sanctioned two companies linked to the uh, South Sudanese businessman, uh, Benjamin Bomel, uh, who is closely connected to President Salva Kiir. Now, businessman Mel and his sanctioned companies, ARC Resources Corporation Limited and Winners Construction Company Limited, were spotlighted in the century, recent alert sanctioned South Sudanese businessmen are skirting U.S. sanctions. The latest sanctions uh, were imposed uh, by the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, uh, which targets serious human rights abuses and corruption. It comes as the world marked the International Anti-Corruption Day, which is annually observed uh, since the passage of the United Nations Convention Against Corruption on October 31st of 2003, uh, this was done to raise public awareness for anti-corruption. Today, designations uh, demonstrate that efforts at sanctions evasion, such as registering new companies to receive non-competitive and lucrative U.S. dollar-denominated government contracts, will not go unnoticed. Coming on International Anti-Corruption Day, the Department of Treasury 
should be commended uh, for highlighting actors that extract unfair gains at the expense of the people of South Sudan. That was according to Justina Kuzasqua, uh, director of this illicit finance policy at the Century. The U.S. Treasury Department also issued sanctions on a total of 15 individuals and entities across several countries in Central America, Africa, as well as Europe. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, uh, as part of the uh, administration of Joe Biden, said that, quote, corrupt acts take resources from citizens, undermine public trust, and threaten the progress of those who fight for democracy. Those targeted included El Salvador's Chief of Cabinet, uh, Martha Carolina Rosinos de Bernal, Nesta Moncada Lao, a National Security Advisor to Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega, Liberian Senator Prince Yomi Johnson, among others. The State Department also announced visa bans on nine individuals who it said were involved in significant corruption and uh, their immediate family members. And with that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. In concluding, uh, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.com. And if you'd like to listen to today's uh, Pan-African Journals, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, December 11th, uh, 2021. Just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. You can have access to today's program as well as over a thousand other archived editions of the program. In addition, uh, you can share these programs uh, by copying and pasting the links into websites and sending those uh, emails out to other potential listeners. The links can be copied and pasted in the blogs and on websites, as well as the links being shared through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. This is Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. And the stars at night The morning sun Shining big and bright Oh, I've got a lot to offer, darling I've got a lot to offer, darling I'll sprinkle raindrops On your lovely face I'll wrap you in clover With a warm embrace I've got a lot to offer, darling I've got a lot to offer, darling And I'll take you for a ride On a big white cloud Way up in the blue 
to prepare our own vaccinations so that we don't have to keep on relying on vaccines coming from elsewhere. All right, so that's um, the introduction for today. Uh, when we do come to that question and answer section, please utilize the WhatsApp number plus the 251-94-550-2310. Let me give you that number again. It is the plus the 251-94-550-2310. But you can come through online and also utilize the question and answer section. Today, unfortunately, we'll not be able to come to you in French. Our French interpreter has been held up and is not able to attend today. So the whole briefing will be in English. So let's get straight into the briefing. And let me say good morning and welcome to Dr. John Kengasong, who is the director of the Africa CDC for his usual briefing on COVID-19 in Africa. Dr. John, good morning and you have the floor. Good morning, Wayne, and uh, <clears throat> good morning to everyone. Greetings from the Africa Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And today, as always, I will do, uh, give you uh, a briefing on three things. Give you an update on the epidemiological situation of COVID in Africa, then discuss some of the events that uh, Wayne touched on, and conclude with the situation of vaccines and vaccination in Africa. So let's start with the epidemiological update of where we are. As of today, December 9, a total of 8.7 million cases of COVID-19 have been reported on the continent. Of this number, 224,000 people have unfortunately died. If you look at the case fatality rate, it's still around 2.5%. Uh, which is very, very, uh, uh, it has been very stable, but there are some exceptions with countries like Egypt, Somalia, and Sudan reporting case fatality rates of 5%. With respect to the, the, the wave, again, uh, we have seen and enjoyed a downward trend over the last couple of months, but we are beginning to see a ticking up, but we have to interpret that very carefully. As we speak today, uh, 12 countries are actually experiencing a, a fourth wave. And uh, South Africa is in that uh, 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 number of countries now, given the number, of the, the increasing and steady number of, of cases that we are seeing. And Mauritius is uh, now um, experiencing uh, the feed wave. We expect, unfortunately, that we'll continue to see this trend, uh, especially as the holiday seasons are coming up, and we'll come back to that towards the end of our discussion. In terms of the variant, let me just focus today on the, the new variant, the Omicron. A total of 11 African countries have now reported the presence of the Omicron uh, variant, the variant of concern. Seven additional countries uh, have reported the presence of this variant since we last met uh, last week. So let me just uh, give read the number of countries that have reported this variant. South Africa, Botswana, Nigeria, Ghana, and since last week, we've added um, Uganda, Zambia, Senegal, Tunisia, Mozambique, Namibia, and Zimbabwe to the list. Um, in terms of the changes over the last one week, 
we know that between the week of 29 uh, November to the 5th of December, uh, we have seen the, uh, the continent has reported a total of 98,000 new cases. And this represents an, an increase of 80, an average increase of 88%. Uh, the highest numbers, keep that number in mind, the 88%. If you now look at the different regions, you see where are the, a lot of the cases coming from. 79% of the cases are coming from Southern Africa. 14% of the cases are coming from Northern Africa. 3% from Eastern Africa. 2% from West Africa and 2% from uh, Central Africa. So a majority of these cases are being driven from the, with the, the situation we are seeing in South Africa. The following five countries are reporting the highest number of new cases. South Africa with 70,000 cases, Egypt with 66,000, Zimbabwe 5,000, Libya 3,000, and Tunisia 1,500 new cases. In terms of deaths, and these are new deaths, we have uh, over the last um, week we have re we recorded as a continent 1,076 uh, 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 new deaths, 1,076 new deaths, and this is slightly up from last week's number where we re reported nine, 943 deaths, and this represents a 14% average increase of number of total number of deaths <clears throat> compared to last week. If we now look at the four weeks uh, uh, changes over the last uh, one month, we noticed the following trends. In terms of uh, new, uh, uh, new infections, that is uh, people that are newly diagnosed, uh, there are an average increase of 44%. Then in terms of deaths, new deaths, we've seen an average increase of 1%. One, 1%. But interestingly, Nigeria is now reporting about 100% average increase, Kenya 72% average increase, South Africa 20%, um, Egypt 3% decrease, DRC 23% decrease, and Ethiopia 7% average decrease. <clears throat> In terms of testing, a cumulative number of 83 million tests have been conducted on the continent. Last week alone, uh, about close to 970,000 tests were conducted on the continent. It represents uh, a slight decrease of 14%. So let me just uh, comment on the events that uh, uh, Wayne mentioned. Last, uh, this week, that is Monday, Tuesday, uh, we hosted <clears throat> Africa CDC, the African Union, and the African Continental Free Trade Area, hosted a very successful meeting. Uh, and I'll include that uh, AU NEPAD, a very successful meeting on the progress we have made since we've convened in April on vaccine manufacturing on the continent. Over 16,000 participants attended, including uh, President Kagame in person and uh, several representatives of head of state from DRC and Egypt. Overall, uh, the, the head of state noted with, uh, with pleasure the um, uh, and welcome the progress that the continent has made in, in progress towards vaccine manufacturing. And I'll list some of them, uh, starting with South Africa, where you, you know that uh, they reported on the, the license agreement that Johnson & Johnson has now signed. Sorry, the Aspen has signed with Johnson & Johnson. The BAUVAC and the Pfizer uh, agreement to produce mRNA vaccines and the vaccine manufacturing hub. 
then you go to Uganda, uh, to Rwanda, where Rwanda and Senegal have signed, uh, now signed an agreement to produce mRNA vaccines with BioNTech. It's been very, very successful. Then you go up north to Egypt, where Egypt reported that they are currently producing about 3.5 million doses of vaccines, uh, that is the Chinese, the Chinese vaccines. And in the very coming months, we'll be producing uh, the their own vaccines called um, COVID vaccines. COVID vax. So I think that was remarkable, remarkable to hear that, that uh, what Egypt is already producing. And that is why we thought that the meeting must be co-hosted by the continental free trade area, so that as these countries produce the vaccine, there's a market there across the continent. We also knew that it was important to have a continental regulatory uh, uh, approach, so that vaccines that are being produced on the continent will actually go through a rigorous continental uh, regulatory process and then uh, give, provide their stamp of approval and then the CFTA will create a market for that and the vaccines will be sold. I think that was the whole mechanics governing the, the meeting there. Then Senegal, uh, we've gone to Senegal where we see uh, they reported vast construction sites and I was there four, months, four weeks ago to see the construction site of mRNA uh, vaccine and other vaccines uh, produced there. Nigeria presented a roadmap on vaccine production in, in that country, as well as uh, uh, Ghana discussing their, their plans. So I think it was a very well uh, attended meeting with a, a remarkable progress since uh, we, we, uh, we met in April 12 and 13 uh, uh, last year. So I think that, 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 that um, we, a communique will be issued very, very shortly, but so just read that and I hope we can discuss it further. Let me just conclude my briefing by giving you an update on where we are with the vaccine acquisition on the continent. A total of 431.9 million doses of vaccines have been procured on the continent, of which 245 million doses have been administered. For people that have received their double doses, uh, about 7.35% of the population have received their double uh, dose of immunizations. Morocco, Egypt, South Africa, Ethiopia, and Algeria continues to make uh, very good uh, uh, progress so far. So I believe that is uh, the, the summary of what happened over the week, I will turn it over to Wayne for, to facilitate the question and answer session. Thank you very much. Uh, that was Dr. John Nkenasong of the Africa CDC, uh, bringing us not just uh, the situation of um, the epidemiological situation of COVID-19, but also a lot of progress that has been made on the African continent and uh, that was reported at that conference that was held in Kigali in Rwanda from the 6th to the 7th of this month. Let's now go into your question and answer section, uh, but perhaps let me just give you that WhatsApp number for you to send in some of your questions, and it is a plus 251-94-550-2310. But uh, you can also chat to us live and uh, send in your questions through the question and answer section. All right, let's uh, now look at um, people who want to ask their questions live. And uh, first, we have Paul Adepoju. Good morning, Paul. Please go ahead with your question. 
thank you very much. Um, so good morning, uh, Dr. John. So I have a couple of questions. Um, the first one has to do with uh, an issue I'm having reconciling uh, vaccination data available on Africa for one country, Mozambique. Paul, you're a bit low. Is it just on my side or? Uh, Hello? Oh, Is it yeah. Clear now? Yeah, it's just, we can hear you, but it's just low. We have to strain a little bit. Okay. Um, so, uh, my, so I said I want clarification on uh, data regarding vaccination uh, on Mozambique. On Africa Citizens' website, he said uh, Mozambique has administered nearly 11.1 million doses, but the supply vaccines uh, stays at 10.8, so which means the country has administered more doses than is registered on the website as uh, being uh, acquired. So I don't know if we can have uh, uh, expansion for that. Then Eritrea seems to be the only country in Africa that has not started uh, COVID-19 vaccination. I'd like to know uh, if there is an update on that. And uh, my other question has to do with uh, countries, African countries like the DRC that has a wide margin between the number of doses acquired and the number of doses that they've actually used. I think it's just it's been able to utilize just less than around 5%. So um, what is the plan to uh, ensure that vaccines acquired are not, uh, that the country is not using, uh, is not wasted? So I want to know uh, what has been done. Maybe there's a distribution strategy in place or uh, what is the plan? And my last, second to the last question has to do with the sequencing. Sorry, sorry, Paul, Paul. Um, I think uh, that's enough questions for now. Let's give Dr. John that chance to answer them. And then perhaps you can come back after other, other colleagues have, have asked their questions. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you, Paul, for the, um, taking the time to check on our website. I'm, uh, I really am pleased to know that you, you look at that. Um, because I've not, uh, uh, I've not checked it myself. Let, let me take that as an assignment and get back to you uh, next week or even before next week. So I'll let my the, my colleagues who are on here uh, uh, to uh, promise and or to take note of that uh, question that uh, you raised on Mozambique, and we'll reconcile that and email you that or uh, uh, discuss it next week or, or do both so that everybody can have a chance of hearing how uh, those numbers uh, tie up together. Uh, for Eritrea, you are right. Eritrea is the only country now that has not uh, joined um, the family of 55 member states that are moving forward with vaccination. But we are not giving up. You remember some few months ago, uh, it used to be three countries that we uh, uh, were uh, uh, challenged with. Uh, that, but today we are left with one. And uh, believe me, you, our policy and philosophy of leave no country behind uh, is, uh, is, is valid. Uh, you, you recall that I personally had to go to um, uh, uh, Tanzania uh, to discuss the situation and will not uh, relent on uh, going to uh, um, Eritrea if need be. So just um, bear with me and it's always a, a process. Uh, we are not giving up. In terms of DRC and other countries that are challenged, um, know that the initiative that we launched uh, together with the MasterCard Foundation called Saving Lives, Saving uh, Livelihoods is, is, is up and running. 
and we had uh, in the coming, uh, uh, the past weeks, and including today in Rwanda, have a large number of countries, uh, including DRC, that we are discussing with them ways to support them de developing precisely what we call micro planning. And last week, a team was in Morocco with another set of countries, uh, about 16 of them, to discuss micro planning. So in the coming month, it's actually starting January, you see uh, us increasingly engaging with countries to provide them with uh, very specific technical support to advance their, their vaccination uh, uptake. So I think that is um, a work in progress. We acknowledge the low uptake of vaccines in DRC, but we are sure that we are working hard uh, with the authority of the government of DRC to uh, using our Saving Lives, Saving Livelihood initiative uh, to support them and other countries as much as uh, possible. I think those were the questions that Paul raised. All right, so we'll come back to Paul a bit later on, but uh, let's move on now to Sosimu Kwena, who is with the SABC. Good morning, Sophie, and please go ahead with your question. Good morning, uh, Dr. Kengasong. The issue of uh, Omicron has caused so much damage in terms of the economy of the southern region. Uh, after major countries, particularly your developed north, took a decision to impose travel restrictions. But what was even disappointing to the citizens of the southern region that is Sade and the other countries, including South Africa, that uh, uh, had to deal with or are still dealing with the travel restriction was that some African countries and I will call out Rwanda in particular, did what the North and the developed countries and some in Asia has done, you know, to the South by imposing tough measures against South Africa and the other uh, SADC countries. What is your position, which can even lead to a situation where transportation of much needed medical uh, 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 assistance and tools and, 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 and technology not being able to reach a country like South Africa where sequencing is done and the scientists in South Africa have actually saved the whole world but a country on the continent just followed what the North did. What's your reaction? No, so let me, uh, um, uh, Sophie, respond uh, as I've been consistent all, all through this, that um, first of all, we should recognize the extraordinary uh, uh, work that the, the scientists in South Africa did. And, and uh, we really uh, give them a, a shout out uh, of congratulations, tons of congratulations from, from all of us. Uh, the network that we've established for pathogen genomics that is monitoring uh, emergence of, of, of new variants of COVID is working, it's at work. And, and Africa CDC is proud to be a part of that uh, network and actually the orchestrator of that network. Um, the second credit I'd like to give is to the leadership of, uh, the political leadership of South Africa for coming out in a timely fashion and also in a very transparent way to announcing uh, this result. They didn't hide it. That's what we all have been calling for, timely and transparent and accurate uh, sharing of information. 
Now, they, uh, what happened there, we've been discussing uh, in terms of the reaction after that. Uh, I think we've discussed that all over. We, the Africa CDC was the first to issue a statement cautioning that um, in the history of this pandemic, uh, the, uh, the restrictions and, uh, have never prevented the spread of these variants. And I think we, uh, I mean, I would like to refer you to that statement. And uh, that I think we were right. And I always say to, uh, to, uh, to say this, what I'm saying, that we were right, because now we know that so many countries in the world have now uh, uh, reported the cases of Omicron. The, now, the, you asked my position. I don't, um, we, uh, Africa CDC is a specialized technical agency, and our views were expressed in that communique. The African Union, which is the overall modern uh, uh, organization, has now issued a, a, a statement. And I think I'll refer you to look at that statement where they essentially they are urging uh, that the restrictions should be uh, lifted uh, because of the economic damage that it is having on, on, on countries. I think I really, it's the very detailed statement that the African Union has issued, and I'd rather refer you to that uh, statement. I work for the African Union, and I can, uh, uh, of course, uh, 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 submit to what they have uh, issued there. So, uh, Sophie, I believe that statement was issued uh, today or yesterday, so that will be the best source of uh, information. Thank you. All right, uh, thank you. I think uh, let's uh, go to a question that has come through our question and answer section, and um, it is from SABC again, and uh, this one is from Sarah Kimani. And Sarah says, uh, what measures have been put in place to ensure that there is no wastage as the vaccine doses are arriving into the continent um, in more numbers. Did the Africa CDC work with African countries to ensure that there is infrastructure that is vital in getting the jabs into people's arms? Yes, so let me uh, start with uh, the second part of the question. For months, since um, June, we have been working with countries, uh, over 40 countries, as part of the Saving Lives, Saving uh, Livelihood Initiative, which is a $1.5 billion uh, initiative to prepare countries and to develop their plans for that. So this has to be both uh, us as a technical support agency and the country showing leadership as well. I think that is um, what is clear. The second thing we have we've done, which uh, I'm sure you've seen the communicate, is to provide guidelines to um, the countries that are donating vaccines to say, look, don't give us vaccines where the, if the expiring date is very, very short, because that will uh, become problematic in terms of uptake of the vaccines there. So that guideline, you can also see that uh, 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 together with uh, WHO, Gavi, and, and, and UNICEF. Uh, always uh, co-signatories of that guideline because some of the challenges that we're having in terms of um, number of vaccines received and number of vaccines that are actually expiring is because of the short uh, notification. The other issue is the coordination, lack of coordination. So if countries just say, uh, wake up in the morning and say we are uh, sending 10 million doses of vaccines to Africa, that doesn't help with the planning. Uh, we've always heard that, I mean, uh, the, the kind of exercise that we did with the, the U.S. government <clears throat> where uh, when they wanted to ship our vaccines, they did a very detailed planning with the AU, with the other team led by uh, Mr. Strive, Masiwa. Uh, uh, it was a, a, a very fine planning that went on for about two weeks. And in the end, the vaccines were properly received. That is the kind of discussion that we are seeing uh, countries. I mean, so engage with us. 
engage with the African Union, engage with Avad so that we can do the effective planning and understand which country already still have some vaccine and where can these vaccines go and be easily used and whatever. That is the kind of exercise that I think um, we should be uh, aiming for. And uh, we encourage all donor countries to work with us in a coordinated uh, fashion. Maybe I should just go back to the question that um, uh, 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 and provide additional uh, uh, information on what um, the, the question on, on, on the lockdown and all restrict travel restrictions. Again, just to say that um, uh, uh, we want to believe that the initial uh, restrictions were because the countries wanted to understand what the, the virus uh, uh, will behave. And now we are beginning to see have some tendencies there. And so again, we are urging that countries, as stated in the African Union, uh, uh, communicate that countries should really uh, be considering lifting up the, the, the restrictions. All right. Uh, thank you very much, John. We go back online and uh, we say good morning to Dudu Zeleramela, who is with the News from Africa in South Africa. Dudu, good morning. Good morning, Ms. And thank you so much. Uh, Dr. John, good morning and thank you for the update. It's quite encouraging to see that some countries are setting up facilities to make our own vaccines, yet in South Africa, vaccine hesitancy is quite high with some sectors of the population believing that perhaps we should make it mandatory. I'd just like to know the thought of the CDC on this. Should it be mandatory and which other African countries are looking into this as well? And just a note, I recently traveled to Senegal last week and going through three countries. Not once was I asked for a vaccination certificate just for my PCR test. Um, could this also not lead to, you know, vaccine hesitancy? You see people asking, why should I, if I never have to produce it while traveling on the continent or within the continent at least? Thank you. So, so very, uh, very important question. I think the first thing should be that um, we, we should all use uh, various influences that we have on the, uh, in the society to get people to get vaccinated. Uh, we are not going to win the war against uh, um, this pandemic if we are not vaccinated, period. I mean, and especially in Africa. If we have been fighting very hard with all of you for almost two years, we have been on this forum with you all fighting for access to vaccines. And if the vaccines are now coming in and our people are not receiving the vaccines, then it will become extremely uh, uh, unfortunate. And we cannot win this battle against COVID-19 without vaccination, period. So I think uh, my first order of business would be to continue to appeal to the citizens of Africa to get out there and get their vaccines. The second thing is that if people do not do that, then governments would not have a choice other than to impose a vaccine mandate, uh, a vaccine mandate to, to uh, people. I think some countries are already doing that, and it would not be the first. Um, uh, uh, Africa would not be the first to impose uh, the green uh, the green pass. I think that is um, we've seen that work in uh, some developed countries, and but we don't need to get there if we just do the right thing. If you recall, I've been calling for everyone to sign a social contract with a, 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 a social contract that says I need to get vaccinated so that I can protect myself, protect my community, protect my loved ones, and protect my country. For how long shall we be going on with the lockdowns and then easing down and lockdown again? And what is extremely damaging. Each time we do, we go through this series of lockdowns. It costs us about $30 billion, $30 billion. So, and we really have are beginning to see vaccines arrive. So we should really go out there and get, uh, get vaccines. So um, 
on the question of a vaccine passed across the continent, that has not yet become a policy across the continent. And I understand that, that uh, until this, this moment, vaccines were very limited, access to vaccines was very limited. And if countries were imposing that across Africa, then no one would actually be traveling. But I would not be surprised that uh, in the coming uh, months, the, the leadership of the continent will begin to ask for that uh, for vaccine uh, uh, passport to travel. So again, uh, please uh, do not be, uh, let's put our hands together, all hands on deck, so that we can use our different channels, different uh, networks, and different opportunities to encourage the continent to get, to get vaccinated at scale so that we don't need to get to vaccine mandates. All right, uh, thank you, John. And let's say hello to James Chege, who is online. James, please tell us your news organization and then ask your question. Good morning, James Chege. Good morning, uh, Doctor. I have a question on COVAX supplies. I'm a journalist with Reuters News. There's a report from India about serum cutting output because of the slowing demand of, uh, uh, from COVAX. Um, do you think the donations that have been flowing into the COVAX scheme are replacing supplies from serum? I, uh, James, I don't understand the question. So uh, can you uh, just, just uh, say, uh, repeat that, please? Okay, so there are reports in India that the serum uh, is reducing its output um, because of slowing demand uh, from the COVAX scheme. So I'm wondering, do you think this uh, reduced demand, if it is there, is being caused by the donations that Africa is receiving from, from the West? You know, thanks, James, for that question. You know, the problem with the serum and India and COVAX and Africa is, is one that is uh, uh, very unfortunate, and I have to say it very clearly. Um, Avad, under the leadership of uh, Mr. Strive Masiwa, was the first to engage with the serum uh, last year to uh, try to uh, uh, agree and sign a contract with. If you recall on this platform, I did brief at some point that uh, we were very close to signing a, 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 an agreement with uh, Serum. And Serum just uh, decided to act in a very unprofessional manner and, and stop communicating with our team. So that created uh, a situation where uh, uh, we found ourselves uh, uh, extremely uh, unhappy with that situation and then engaged with Johnson & Johnson. And if you also recall that uh, uh, in April, countries received their first doses of uh, the AstraZeneca va vaccines from serum. And then uh, there was a ban from India for the, uh, the exports of, of vaccines. So that created that gap and also created distrust. So I think what you are seeing now is, is that because of that, those factors, people, countries move towards uh, Abad in Africa and, and, and bought their vaccines. I mean, you all know that we have signed an agreement of 400 million doses of vaccines from Johnson & Johnson, and those are vaccines that are paid for by African countries themselves. So if now Serum is shipping vaccines to COVAX, and other, I really don't know the mechanics, the mechanics of what volumes are they shipping to COVAX there, but it will not surprise me that countries are now looking at that like, 
okay, we needed you and you were not there for us. I, we, we, I read uh, an interview by the CEO of Serum, on, uh, and I think that was in the Sunday Times, and which was very, very regrettable and unfortunate. That it, and it, it was so condescending that I can't believe that a, a CEO of such an organization stated that these African countries are not coming to pick their vaccines and blaming literally African countries. Where you now understand the history that we started discussing with them and they acted so unprofessional that uh, we just stopped the, 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 the discussions with them. To now turn around and say that uh, uh, these African countries are not um, coming to get vaccines, that is very, very unfortunate. All right, uh, thank you. Let's um, say hello to Matthew Hill, and uh, Matthew is with the Bloomberg. And he says, how concerned is the Africa CDC about the risks of a severe fourth wave in countries like Zimbabwe and Mozambique being accelerated by migrant workers returning to their families in their home countries from South Africa and going back home for the holidays and therefore spreading the Omicron variant. And then he asks, so what is the best way to mitigate this? So let me just say this, and I think I've been always been very direct and uh, with my thinking on this issue, is that you will see uh, an increased spread of Omicron across the continent. Let there be no doubt about that. I said this when Delta just emerged, and I'm saying this again because uh, 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 of the evidence that we have. And as a virologist, I know how this virus is spread. So you will see an increase. Last week, we're still on very limited number of countries. Today, we are with 11 countries, and you expect to see this number increase. The greatest uh, concern that we should be having with uh, Omicron is uh, what we discussed last week. I mean, the four questions that we should ask is, are people infected with Omicron virus detected? The answer is yes. Is it leading to increased transmissibility? I think the answer we are seeing from South Africa is yes, that it is beginning to slowly take over the, the Delta. Does it lead to severe disease outcome there? The answer is we don't know yet, but early data is suggesting that it, that, is, that might not be the case. Okay, I mean, period. I think that is, but we still have to wait to see in the coming weeks what that will look like. Then the last question is, if I'm vaccinated, am I protected against the, the Omicron? The, the answer is you are not protected from being infected, but if you're infected, you still have antibodies, neutralizing antibodies that can reduce the severity of, of the disease. Very early data coming from South Africa and other places is now showing that uh, the current vaccines there might be a reduction in, in neutralizing antibodies for the current vaccines vis-a-vis -vis, uh, this variant there, so, but it's not zero. So that is why it's so important that the first order of business should be a population to go out there and be vaccinated that you have at least some levels of antibodies. That, I mean, even if there's a reduction, you still have antibodies in you that will protect you from developing severe disease and hospitalization. Those are the four things that should be worrying us so that we do not see Omicron like a, a totally new virus that is out there and is going to, um, uh, uh, to, to uh, take over and, and undermine us. Lastly, your last, uh, the, 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 the second part of the question is so pertinent about what can we do. We are not helpless. We have tools in our disposition that we now know work, like distancing, wearing masks, 
and, 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 and making sure that uh, uh, we, we do outdoor activities more than indoor is very important. Those, uh, what we call public health and social measures have been there. We are veterans in using these measures in uh, preventing uh, in, uh, the spread of this virus for the past two years. I mean, we, I mean, the continent of Africa. So uh, are you concerned that at uh, the end of the year festivities may lead to increased spread of COVID? Not just for the variant, but for the, 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 the COVID-19 uh, uh, virus as a whole. Uh, if you recall last year in December, I did warn that by January, February, you see an, an, uptick, an uptick in the number of uh, new cases, and it happened. We will definitely see an num increased number of, of cases around January, February timeline across the continent. Uh, because of the holiday season then. So that is why I said last week that as we break into the holiday season, let's enjoy our end of year season. We all uh, uh, deserve it, but let's do that safely. Let's keep safety in mind that there are things that we can do. We are not helpless. Uh, if we wear a face mask, there's no variant that can penetrate face masks if we, if we do it consistently and properly. Let's avoid parties and large groups of people gathering together to party. Let's make sure that we social distance wherever we are in public places. That is, you keep safe distance from, from others and wash your hands and sanitize as far as or If we do these things, there's clearly going to be a way that we can slow down the spread of this variant. And lastly, of course, get vaccinated. Very, very important is get, get vaccinated. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, we go over to Uganda where we say hello to Esther Nakazi, and she's a freelance journalist. So Esther says, after the conference on vaccine manufacturing, what are Dr. John's thoughts on Africa being able to produce 60% of total doses by 2040? And she says, will this really happen after what he witnessed or heard during the just concluded conference? Oh, the for sure, I'm, I'm very optimistic. I'm perhaps more optimistic uh, uh, today than before I went into the conference. And if Egypt is producing, as we speak today, about 3.5 million doses of vaccines already, uh, you look at Algeria producing, Morocco producing, and in the coming months, not years, you see uh, countries like uh, Senegal, Rwanda come, and South Africa, of course, uh, uh, come online. I'm very excited. I'm really pleased to see this progress. More so, the way we fight the next pandemic will be very different from this pandemic because the continent would have been producing diagnostics and vaccines. So I'm very, very encouraged that uh, we will reach that aspirational goal of at least manufacturing 60% of our vaccines by uh, 2040. You know, this is about 20 years from now. So uh, if we do not do that, we don't have a choice. We truly don't have a choice as a continent. Uh, a choice of not uh, engaging in manufacturing of what I call the health security commodities. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, we'll see. Uh, 2040 is just 20 years around the corner, and I'm sure that uh, we'll be able to still have this dialogue then. But the early signs are looking very, very good. And that's why we are celebrating the regulatory components so that the continent should be able to have a, a common uh, uh, mechanism through the African Medicine Agency to be able to issue a regulatory pass to these vaccines that are produced. All right, sir. thank you. Hello to Lydia Namubiru, who is with the continent, and uh, Lydia is online. Lydia, please go ahead with your question. Hello, Lydia. 
Um, I think perhaps Lydia is having some uh, challenges coming through. Lydia, are you able to talk to us now? I am able to talk to you, but it doesn't sound like you're hearing me. We can hear you now. Please go ahead. Okay. All right. Thank you. Well, my question is still about the travel bans. Are they likely to, or are they already uh, affecting Africa's own efforts to uh, on COVID-19? Uh, as you can imagine, Lydia, uh, we, we import a lot of uh, COVID-related uh, commodities from outside the continent. So if they are banned, uh, it is likely that uh, they will uh, be in, these efforts will be in, impacted. I don't have evidence yet to show for this, but uh, it, uh, I think you can uh, reasonably think that, that that will be the case. Thank you. Let's say hello to Elizabeth Merab, who is with the Nation Africa in Nairobi. And Elizabeth says Oxford University this week released data that, uh, that was in support of mix and match booster shots. South Africa has approved the third dose for its adult and vulnerable population. What is the Africa CDC's position on this, seeing as though the WHO remains adamant against recommending booster shots. Is there an agreed level of neutralizing antibodies that should be attained to be for one to be considered to be protected against SARS-CoV-2? So that's from Elizabeth. So uh, let me start with our position there. Uh, our position is clear that uh, we should let science guide the process. Uh, also, our position is that you cannot even be talking of a booster if you don't have people that have received their first dose. So you get to a booster by doing your first dose, and then you do their second dose, and then you talk of a booster. So where we are today with about 7.35% of the population that have received two doses there, we are far from even, uh, I am far from even bothering about uh, a booster there. My energy and effort is to push the population to go out there and get the vaccine get their, their, their second doses, and then we can talk about boosters. However, for where the science is, tell, what the science is telling us is that, at least for in Africa, those who are the elderly that have received their two doses of vaccines because of the decay in antibody levels, neutralizing antibody levels, of the, those who are above uh, uh, 55 to 60 years onward should get their boosters. And the boosters there can be a match, mismatch of vaccines. It doesn't, the science there shows that if you use the mRNA vaccines for a booster, it even blows up the response, which means increased neutralizing antibodies. Uh, but it doesn't also uh, uh, mean that if there's only the same Johnson & Johnson vaccine that you have for booster or AstraZeneca, you should not do that. It just I mean, tells you that one uh, combination gives, you a, it gives a higher yield than the other. I think that is one. The second thing is that um, we should be very mindful that uh, there are people that have uh, uh, existing immunocompromising conditions, and those individuals will also be the second category of people that should actually be getting their, their boosters. I mean, so that, but we are not, as Africa CDC, recommending a blanket booster across the continent. How can you do that? Where only a small number of people, 7% of the population, has actually been vaccinated fully. So I think that is that will be a, 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 a that is a, a position. 
if that makes sense to uh, to to uh, I don't know if I'm clear or not. All right. Um, I think if Elizabeth has further comments, she'll come back to us. But uh, let's move on now to Addis Getachew, who is with Anadolu News Agency. And he wants to pick up on the question about AVAT and the Serum Institute. And he says that you've discussed this, and his question is, would that be the end? And he goes further to say, I mean, if money and contracts are involved, one may expect impending litigation. No, I mean, we don't have any, that's what I said, the, the, the negotiations ended. We didn't sign a contract with uh, the Serum Institute. We started very, uh, having very good discussions, then the, they went silent, and then uh, the India banned the export of vaccines. And now, uh, uh, as I said, I, I, I was very surprised to see the comments from the, 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 the CEO about Africa. And now I'll leave it at that. So uh, we don't have a contract with Serum Institute. All right, thanks for clarifying that. Let's come back to colleagues online and uh, Paul Adepoju had some uh, questions still to ask. Uh, Paul, please go ahead. Hello, Paul. Hello. All right, perhaps. My, my yes, Paul, please just ask your remaining questions uh, to maximum, please. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. John, you mentioned the uh, pathogen genomics uh, network, and um, while there has been commendable progress in places like South Africa, uh, there seems to be inequality in terms of uh, genomic surveillance elsewhere. We have countries that in January, they've only produced uh, 22 sequences, and in some countries, uh, the last sample that they are releasing results was nearly about 100 days ago. So I want to know um, what uh, is still the problem that we are not, even though we have this network in existence, uh, we don't seem to be seen in real time uh, or within similar period across the continent, the current status uh, of the epidemic, of the pandemic. And what do you suppose, uh, see the future of these uh, genomic uh, network uh, serving uh, African countries even beyond uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Thank you very much. I, I think, Paul, you, you, you have your hands on a very uh, important topic. Uh, first of all, let's celebrate the progress. In January, as a continent, through that network, we have generated only about 5,000 gen uh, genomic uh, genomes across the entire continent. Today, we have exceeded 52,000 uh, genomes. And when we set a target of that by December, we would at least try to get to 50,000. We just, people didn't believe us. Uh, and through this network, and with a, a specialized lab like those uh, in Nigeria, with Christian Hafiz lab, the labs in South Africa, the Pasteur Institute, we've conducted vast trainings, extensive trainings. Just four weeks ago, we had like back-to-back -back trainings in three countries, okay? I think just to increase the capacity. So. That capacity is, is progressing. The partnerships with uh, uh, the Gates Foundation, with uh, um, Alumina and others, is really has been extremely uh, valuable. And of course, working with the WHO uh, and Afro in this. So it's, I would say that there's a lot of progress. Uh, are we there yet? Not. Uh, it is a goal that uh, as many countries as possible should be able to do that sequencing locally and report the data real time. So like many other things on the continent, it takes time to build uh, 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 infrastructure and institutions and networks. But again, 
I'm myself really amazed to see the speed at which uh, this particular uh, network in the Pathogen Genomic Institute that we established before COVID. We established the Pathogen Genomic Institute of Africa CDC in 2018, December 2018, not knowing that uh, just the following year, one year later, we were going to need it so badly. So, but here we are with over 50 something thousand genomes produced. So we've exceeded our target that we set uh, in, uh, we set that target early in the year to get to, to cross the 50,000 uh, 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 signposts, and we have done that. Thank you, thank you. Um, and, and, and just to finalize, maybe just to say that, um, uh, that you continue to, uh, this capacity and capabilities that have emerged because of COVID can definitely be used in, in, in addressing other emerging infectious diseases or existing ones uh, across the continent. So that is capacity that will be cross-cutting. All right, so thank you for that. Esther Nakazi has come back with a follow-up question. She says some of the conference speakers, uh, that's the conference in uh, Kigali, she says they implied that there should not be competition among member states but that rather they should be complementing each other in the case of vaccine manufacturing in Africa. Then she goes on to ask the question, does that mean that some countries like Uganda should not even try to join a vaccine manufacturing and leave it only to the big players? No, I mean, that's not what the, the spirit of what we are doing is that we are in this together and that is why uh, the Partnership for African Vaccine Manufacturing was launched, and it has been endorsed by the Executive Council of the African Union as the vehicle for coordinating vaccine, uh, vaccine production efforts there. So what that platform does is, a uh, platform meaning the, uh, the Partnership for African Vaccine Manufacturing, is that it provides the ecosystem, I mean, an, a, a, a framework where the entire ecosystem of vaccine manufacturing can be analyzed. So that if Uganda was interested in vaccine manufacturing, they can look at the whole system from end to end and say, ah, we see where we can feed ourselves into the vaccine manufacturing. If Uganda actually says, well, we can produce everything from end to end ourselves, that is the lipids, the active product ingredients, the, um, the glasswares and everything, so be it. But if they look at it and say, well, in this whole ecosystem, we only like to focus on one area, then we'll partner with South Africa, Rwanda, Kenya and others, then, then I think it becomes uh, uh, something that uh, uh, you can use the platform uh, to call. We can, as a platform, help Uganda to uh, to coordinate those efforts there. I think other countries are doing that. Rwanda and, and, and Ghana are working together. Those, uh, that is the spirit of, of the, the, the collaboration. I think the, the, the principles of the collaboration is there, but the spirit of the collaboration to produce vaccines should be that we should do this as a network of countries. All right, so let me just uh, come back to Elizabeth Merab, who's reminded us that uh, we have not attended to the last part of her question, which was whether there is an agreed level of neutralizing antibodies that should be attained to be considered protected. Uh, no, the short answer is not, not yet, not to my understanding. I don't think there's a, a test that says that if you fall below 40%, uh, you are more exposed to uh, that, but there's clear correlation between the level of antibodies and the ability to uh, for you to uh, have less severe uh, disease. All right, uh, let's say hello again to Jane Chege. Jane, do you have a follow-up question? 
Yes, hello, Doctor. A question on Omicron. Do you think that the concern over Omicron has been blown out of proportion? No, I, I don't think so. We should take all emerging uh, variants of concern very seriously and study them. I think and not minimize it and let uh, the science uh, give us a reason to not be concerned with it but not panic. I mean, I've been saying this all along. Uh, we don't need to panic. We will deal with this and we will overcome this as we've done in the previous variants. But if you look at uh, the mutations that uh, characterize the Omicron, the, the vast number of mutations that include mutations that we have seen for Delta, uh, there was a cause for uh, people to be very, very concerned. Uh, but again, it's too early in this. Let's see what the effectiveness data will show us that is the real-time data in the field, that is people that have received their vaccines, uh, would they be infected, and if infected, would that lead to severe disease? <clears throat> people that are infected with Omicron, would they, are they coming down sick in the coming weeks and, and, and months? Are there new symptoms that we are seeing? So I think, uh, I mean, I want to distinguish between being concerned and panicking. We should be truly be concerned, but we should not, be, we should not panic because we have the tools available to, to deal with it. The scientific knowledge has advanced so much. All right, uh, thank you very much. We have just about five minutes to go. And uh, the next question that I have, or set of questions that I have, um, may not be directly related to uh, the situation of COVID-19 and sounds more like a human resource uh, issue. So I'm not sure if this is the right platform, but uh, Sarah Jervin, is asking about the process of finding um, a new head for Africa CDC. No, that is a valid question. Uh, uh, so I think the, the, the head of state and the, the leadership of the African Union Commission are working very hard on this. And I'm sure that uh, they will be, it's out of my hands. I think it is with the, 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 the ownership the owners of what I call the shop. So they're, they're busy at work uh, 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 trying to move this process as, uh, forward as quickly as possible. All right, so thank you so much for that. Uh, it's time now for us to go into your summary briefing. I'm just highlighting the main points that you want colleagues to take away. Really, that we should celebrate the success of the progress we have made uh, since April. Uh, if you all recall, in April of this year, we had a meeting, a summit on the vaccine, where 40,000 people attended the, in two days, several head of states. And at that time, believe me, we were still looking at backward into countries that uh, were producing like yellow fever vaccine, like the Institute Pasteur. Fast forward today, we are in December, and to see that large number of countries not just expressing the intent to produce, but actually now producing, like in Egypt, uh, in Senegal, building fiscal infrastructure, agreement signed with Rwanda, BioNTech, and uh, 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 Senegal, South Africa, the Bauvac, uh, uh, the Aspen, uh, the license that Aspen has just signed with the Johnson & Johnson is remarkable. I think that we, we must uh, 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 step, step back to celebrate that progress. And if we continue at this pace, clearly we are moving, marching towards achieving our goal of uh, uh, producing at least 60% of our vaccines on the continent. There are two things that uh, we really want to emphasize, that as countries move ahead speedily, we should look, work very hard to support the, the full operationalization of AMA 
so that we have an instrument that can produce a continent-wide uh, mechanism to, um, uh, for uh, 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 emergency use authorization of vaccines. The second thing is that we should be riding on the back of the, the CFTA uh, to produce a, uh, to a market that these vaccines once produced, they should be used on the continent. And thirdly, is that we should be working with international bodies like Gavi, so that, I mean, it is more um, also international. That way, products that are produced in Africa can be exported. We should not just be looking into the African market, but looking into uh, beyond Africa. Just like we import vaccines from China and India, we should be able to uh, produce vaccines on the continent and export them as well. All right, uh, thank you very much. Um, that was Dr. John Nkenga Song, the Director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, speaking to us about the overall epidemiological situation, but also giving us a very, very critical update on how far Africa has come in the process of the manufacture of COVID-19 vaccines, and I think many other vaccines as well. So we celebrate uh, that progress. Colleagues, thank you very much. It has been a real pleasure being with you for the past one hour. And uh, we'll do this again next week on Thursday at the same time. So from all of us, uh, from the African Union and from the Africa CDC, bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Welcome back. And, uh, that was uh, a briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, from two days ago, uh, December 9th, uh, 2020. One uh, from Baba. We'll take a break and we'll be back uh, with more of the program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast, and uh, that was the music of Howlin' Wolf. And we're going to uh, conclude uh, our program uh, with a update on news and information from Africa and indeed the international community to the program on Africa Live from CGTN. Uh, let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Hello and welcome to China Global Television Network. This is The World Today. I'm Beatrice Marshall in Nairobi. Here are your top stories. Top Chinese officials wrap up a meeting to chart the country's economic course. The United States sees the sharpest rise in prices in nearly 40 years. And experts from 50 countries gather in Beijing for a discussion on democracy based on shared human values. Now, while the rest of the world is regaining economic footing amid COVID-19's lingering fallout, China says it will pursue the proactive and prudent policies that have firmed up its recovery since 2020 well into 2022. A three-day meeting of top officials to set the country's economic course wrapped up in Beijing on Friday. Gao Yiming has more. In its economic roadmap for 2022, China will build on the current macro policies that allowed it to strengthen its recovery from the pandemic since 2020, but is also pledging more support for businesses. This will be in the form of tax and fee cuts and the implementation of support measures for small, medium-sized and private enterprises. Beijing also said it will be more proactive in efforts to defuse economic risks posed by the pandemic. Also on the agenda for next year is more balanced and coordinated regional development. In 2020, China achieved the goal of eradicating absolute poverty, and this year it completed building a moderately prosperous society in all aspects. The government says it will promote rural vitalization and improve the quality of urban development, one that integrates green policies. It also reiterated that 2022 will see more efforts towards attaining peak carbon emissions by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2060. Authorities said phasing out traditional energy sources should be based on safe, clean and reliable new energy alternatives. The government has decided to exclude a cap on the total consumption of renewable energy and energy used as raw material. Policies to mitigate the harmful impact of climate change is integrated in China's development strategy. It's hoped that this priority and other microeconomic policies will contribute to China's sustainable economic development in the near future. Gao Yiming, CGTN. Inflation in the United States has increased at its fastest rate in nearly 40 years. Prices are now almost 7% higher than a year ago. Sarah Walton reports from New York. The Consumer Price Index for November revealed a 6.8% increase in the cost of goods in the U.S. over the past year. 
That's the sharpest rate of increase since June 1982, and it's bigger than analysts had expected. Uh, if you exclude food and energy prices, uh, which is known as the core CPI, uh, the increase was 4.9% year-on-year, which is still the fastest rise since 1991. Now, some of the biggest jumps were in energy prices, with the price of gas now 58% more expensive. Food costs are also up, with grocery prices climbing 6% more than they were a year ago. Federal Reserve officials say this jump is linked to supply chain shortages, coinciding with an increase in demand as COVID-19 restrictions have been lifted across the U.S., And now all eyes are going to be on the Fed when its board meets next week to see what action it will take to deal with this rising inflation. They had already indicated that they're going to begin easing off measures brought in to support the economy during the pandemic uh, in order to counter inflation. Uh, It's thought they'll now announce a speeding up of those plans with the aim of raising short-term interest rates as soon as the spring if needed. Sarah Walton, CGTN, New York. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken Friday held talks with German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock ahead of the, G- the Group of Seven Ministers meeting in Liverpool over the weekend. The agenda of the G7 meeting will touch on security matters, including the build-up of Russian forces on the Ukrainian border. It will also focus on COVID-19 vaccines as well as global infrastructure and growth in the Indo-Pacific region. China has criticized the United States for hosting the Summit for Democracy and accused Washington of trying to undermine the international system to uphold its own hegemony. Beijing says Washington is inciting division and confrontation in the name of democracy, calling it the biggest threat to global democracy. Certain Western countries willfully and condescendingly criticize other countries' human rights conditions while turning a blind eye to their own systematic racism and racial discrimination in the past and at present. Still worse, they use human rights protection as the pretext for bullying, sanctions and belligerence, which is a typical double standard and a travesty of international human rights. We urge certain countries to discard their old habits, earnestly reflect on their deplorable track record of human rights, and face up and address their own problems. The fact that the U.S. felt this summit for democracy needed to be held at all suggests the nervousness in Western and other capitals about the state of their political systems. U.S. President Joe Biden closed the virtual event in which over 100 world leaders participated with a rallying cry. And as we close out the first gathering, let's let's together reaffirm our determination that the future will belong to those who embrace human dignity, not those who trample it, who unleash the potential of their people, not those who stifle it, and who give their people the ability to breathe free, not those who seek to suffocate their people with an iron hand. The U.S. used the summit to commit hundreds of millions of dollars to promote free, fair and transparent elections and other measures too. Critics say the money would be best spent at home, where significant numbers of Americans still believe the 2020 election was stolen and states redraw their election maps and pass laws that tend to disenfranchise many minority groups. There was also controversy over who was invited. Some democracies, like Hungary, Turkey, were not. 
The US hopes that this summit will be held in person by world leaders next year and hopes to use the framework to revive faith in the Western democratic model. Meanwhile, the investigation into the January 6th insurrection continues here and continues to reveal a deep distrust of the US political system from its own citizens. Nathan King, CGTN, and the White House. A discussion on democracy based on shared human values is ongoing in Beijing among scholars, public policy and governance experts from 50 countries, regions and international organizations. CGTN's Wang Siwen tells us more from the International Forum on Democracy. The International Forum on Democracy is now in its second phase, with the topics focused on the development and innovation of a model for democracy. Wang Huiyao, President Center for China and Globalization, said China has adapted a democracy that's suitable for its circumstances. He said China's rapid economic development has led to the rise of three kinds of democracy. These are based on talent, market diversification, and technological access. China has the largest uh, university entrance. Ten million people went to different exams, and millions went to the public servant. Uh, uh, official exams to be an uh, official. So, so you can see that kind of a uh, democracy system, a uh, democratic selection system, is wide and vigorous uh, uh, carried out in all uh, aspects. Second, I would like to say we have this market democracy. China has embraced the market economy, and the market economy is really an economy of competition. And then so the, through the market economy, everybody, you know, one billion smartphone users can choose where to go, what to buy, where to, to, to study and what, to, uh, what job they choose. It's kind of they are voting every day. So, so I think that is also enriched the concept of democracy. Thirdly, I think there is also a, a technology democracy. Technology brings a much greater convenience to the democracy concept. A professor from Belarus said access to education is key to a nation developing values such as democracy. In previous eras, progress has been achieved through the violence. In the modern world, it's achieved exclusively by universal education that cultivates creative, innovative, and research qualities of a person. Different systems of democracy can be reconciled if there was respect and a willingness to learn from each nation's best practices, said a professor from Brazil. The democratization of the international system will have better benefits if based on learning from the successful experiences of each country without ideological prejudice. But ensuring the fruits of a real democracy, such as prosperity for all, can only be achieved if countries stand united. Wherever we do things, we go, we prefer united and prosper. We hope Africans will be united and more the better united, the better. Latin America. United Nations, United even Europeans will prefer you are more united. So that's a better approach to ensure your prosperity and global prosperity. Democracy has gradually evolved as a result of social change and development, and people across the world have different views on democracy. Well, participants from the forum say no matter how you define democracy, the ultimate goal should be people's welfare. Wang Suwen, CGTN, Beijing. A London High Court has paved the way for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to be extradited to the United States. U.S. authorities accuse Australian-born Assange of 18 counts of criminal charges, 
including breaking a spying law and conspiring to hack government computers. He has been held at London's Belmarsh prison since 2019. In January, a lower court had refused the U.S. request to extradite him due to concerns over his mental health. But on Friday, the High Court overturned the ruling. The WikiLeaks website, which, which was launched in 2006, published a large number of confidential U.S. government documents about the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, dealing a huge blow to the U.S. diplomatic image. One person has died in floods in Spain as a storm barra sweeps through the northern region of Navarre. Local media reports the victim was killed while in a vehicle as a shed collapsed due to the heavy rain. The river Arga has broken its banks and several roads have been cut off. Regional authorities said the floods generated by the river Arga were the worst in 20 years. Besides Navarre, Spain's uh, weather agency on Friday put 11 more regions on a weather alert. And we leave it there on this edition of The World Today. I'll be back shortly with more news from the continent in Africa Live. Thanks for watching. GTN, China Global Television Network.
South Africa approved Pfizer booster shots as the Omicron variant drives a surge in coronavirus infections. Nurses Council chief warns of a global shortage of nurses amid a resurgence of COVID-19. And Burkina Faso's President Roche Kabore names a new Prime Minister in the wake of a worsening security crisis. Welcome to Africa Live on CGTN with me, Beatrice Marshall. In Nairobi. Also ahead on the program, South Africa's manufacturing production records its sharpest contraction in more than a year as a factory output slumped in October. And in sports, South African former world boxing champion Nsukubile Mwangwaza recovered from a gunshot wound to resume his career. And we begin in South Africa where the country has approved Pfizer booster shots for adults to stem a fourth COVID-19 wave. The country is recording around 20,000 infections a day, driven mostly by the Omicron variant, CGTN's Julie Shire reports. South African scientists have found vaccines to be less effective against the highly mutated Omicron variants driving the fourth wave, raising the need for booster shots. Johnson & Johnson's is under review, but additional Pfizer jabs have been authorized for adults. The third dose is now also recommended, um, six months after the second dose, which I think is extraordinarily appropriate. Um, then we've got J&J, uh, which is another vaccine that we use in South Africa. And initially we thought we could get away with just one dose of J&J. But it's, it's become clear that the protection may not be as good as if you were to have two dosages. For your 50 pluses, and any other person who's got um, immune-compromised diseases or a lot of chronic diseases that can't afford to get COVID, for them it would work extremely well to just prime that immune system. And the data is, is, now, is, is quite uh, convincing that um, it adds a lot of value to get your booster shots. A second Pfizer shot for children between 12 and 17 has been given the green light. The reason why there was a reluctance initially to even give two dosages was, was early concerns about side effects of the Pfizer vaccine it can cause uh, heart disease. And it appeared to happen more in younger people and therefore there was just a cautious rollout. But it now is turning out that this is not actually that common, like I said. And, and that we can quite safely go ahead and give two dosages at the moment. Despite an alarming surge in new infections, most patients appear to have mild symptoms. Those severely ill in hospital with either Delta or Omicron are largely unvaccinated. Close to 30% of the population have been fully jabbed so far. It seems that the vaccines are doing their job. We know there's immune escape. We have never said that um, the vaccines are going to protect you 100%. We always said the vaccines need to protect you from severe disease and out of hospital, keep you out of hospital. And for now, if we look at the high numbers that we are seeing, and if we look at the hospital admissions, it seems it's true to their work. It's still too early to gorge the severity of Omicron. The good news for now is that hospitals are less stretched than in the previous three waves. But South Africans are being urged to vaccinate or get booster shots to bolster protection against all strains of COVID-19. Julie Shara, CGTN, Cape Town, South Africa.
Meanwhile, UK health authorities said COVID-19 booster shots improves protection against symptomatic infections of the Omicron variant. The Health Security Agency's chief medical advisor, Dr. Susan Hopkins, said vaccine effectiveness dropped significantly three months after the first two doses. But booster shots of the AstraZeneca or Pfizer vaccines can restore protection to up to 75%, though that's still less than against previous variants. Real-world analysis has shown the Omicron strain can evade vaccines. The agency also said it expected Omicron to be the dominant variant in the UK by mid-December. Health officials across the African continent are struggling to overcome vaccine hesitancy. Richer countries have donated more vaccines in recent months, which means more doses are available to the public across Africa. But medics on the continent are now racing against time to inoculate people before the jobs expire as vaccine hesitancy leads to rising vaccine stockpiles. CGTN's Joy Kiruki Juma reports. Penda Health is a low-cost private healthcare facility found in a poor neighborhood of Kenya's capital, Nairobi. It has found one way to speed up the uptake of vaccines by bringing the shorts closer home. For many Kenyans, traveling to one of the big hospital facilities prioritized as vaccine centers has meant lost earnings. Well, because it's closer to my place, I have it done so it's more accessible. I just walk a minute and up here. With just 7% of people fully vaccinated across Africa, experts are now urging African governments to follow the example of Penda. Penda Health was founded in 2012. It offers shots in only seven of its 21 clinics in Nairobi due to the expenses involved in rolling out the program. It's really unfair that when there's a new development in healthcare and medicine and medical science somewhere in the world, it takes too long for it to get to the people who live in our communities. And so part of what Penda is trying to do is shorten the time to get those new medical innovations to our patients. Um, so when the COVID vaccine came around, um, we were really excited because this is one of the key ways that we can put an end to the pandemic. But people like Jafet Matur still need to be convinced that the vaccine is good for them. People should be educated first about the vaccine. If there are any complications, at least they should be told before they take the vaccine. Because we have heard so many stories. And those stories may, may be, okay, me, I'm not buying them. But maybe there are some people who are being scared of the story. So the government and all the health entities should come out clearly and explain to people. The duty to disseminate information plagues many countries in Africa. Joy Kiruki Juma, CGTN. The International Council of Nurses has warned that the number of nurses around the world is shrinking just as the Omicron coronavirus spreads. Western countries are also stepping up recruitment of healthcare workers from Africa and other poorer countries. Here's Joy Kuruki Juma once more with that report. Healthcare workers dedicated to the treatment of COVID-19. Each day promises an end to the pandemic but new variants shatter that hope. Many nurses are now banned out from the COVID-19 pandemic, according to Howard Catton, the CEO of the Geneva-based group representing 27 million nurses in 130 national associations. I think that we are now seeing evidence clearly coming through 
of how that is impacting on people's intentions to stay in the healthcare workforce. Um, and we're seeing the signs of people who are, who are, who are leaving. Some may be through sickness, some may be through early retirement, some may be um, because they feel that they have, they have given all that they, uh, all that they possibly uh, can. At least 115,000 nurses have died from COVID-19, according to Cotton, who believes the WHO figures from the start of the pandemic through May are conservative. I think that we are at a tipping point. Um, I think that there are, you know, very real concerns <clears throat> that next year could see all of those factors, those issues I've talked about, translate into a, a, a crisis of the global healthcare workforce uh, as we see people leave. And if those, as I said, if those numbers continue, the trends that we're seeing, uh, it could be, uh, it could be an, it could be an exodus of, of people. Catton says there was already a global shortage of 6 million nurses before the pandemic, with some 4.75 million nurses due to retire in the next few years. I almost think that, that you know, governments need to be thinking about, you know, the almost the life support package uh, of measures that they need to be putting together uh, to invest in their nurses and their healthcare workers next year, the very real and practical support that our health workforce is going to, to need to get us through this continuing um, pan, uh, pandemic. Wealthy countries have nearly 10 times more nurses to population on average than poor nations. Yet according to the head of International Council of Nurses, many of these countries are recruiting overseas to staff their hospitals. Joy Kirukijuma, CGTN. Burkina Faso President Roch Kabore has nominated a new Prime Minister. The new Prime Minister Lazina Zerbo is a physicist and the former head of a nuclear test ban agency. Former Prime Minister Christopher Dabire resigned from his post on Wednesday. This comes as Kabore faces mounting pressure to make changes due to a security crisis in the country. The crisis has led to growing street protests as Burkina Faso continues to struggle to contain a growing jihadist insurgency. In addition to the resignation of Prime Minister Dabire, Kabore had also reshuffled several top military positions. You're watching Africa Live, still ahead on the program. China marks 20 years since joining the World Trade Organization. And Nigeria takes measures to involve persons with disabilities in the running of public affairs. Nigeria is my home. 160 million vibrant, ambitious individuals constantly seeking the perfect self-expression. It is these people who inspired me to be that person that is seen, to be a voice that is heard, and ultimately to be the anchor that I am. 
I have to tap in, tune in, and turn on the very best qualities within me to deliver the news. I'm Richard and Todd, an anchor for CGTN. December 11th marks 20 years since China joined the World Trade Organization. The country's international trade has grown sixfold since its accession to the global trading body in 2001. China's membership in the WTO was a milestone in the country's reform and opening up. Here's a look at how it happened. I thank Mr. Girard on behalf of the ministerial conference. So agrees. On December the 11th, 2001, China became a member of the World Trade Organization in Doha. With 164 member states, the WTO is the largest international economic organization dealing with the roles of trade. The WTO membership opened up China's market for more international trade and investment and allowed Chinese exports into the world economy. The country's service sector was considerably liberalized and restrictions on retail, wholesale and distribution ended. Foreign investment was allowed into banking, financial services, insurance and telecommunications. Well, China is celebrating 20 years of its succession to the World Trade Organization. The Asian giant has over the years integrated itself into the global economy, opening up trade to various continents in a number of industries. Sumitra Naidu takes a look at China's trade relationship with Africa. China is celebrating today because it was no easy feat getting into the World Trade Organization. Since 2011, China has forged strong trade relationships with a number of countries. It was China's economic competitiveness. It was part of Chinese leadership. They introduced astute policies to take advantage of the global economy and uh, the demand in, in, in manufacturer products to make its exports more competitive. I think that was uh, the game changer. But its relationship with Africa is by far the strongest. Today, China remains Africa's largest trading partner. China took advantage of the things that North America, that Europe are not doing. So it almost starts the relationship by giving something, infrastructure, whether they are lending you money where your credit rating was poor and you couldn't get money from the World Bank. They are closing the gap that was left by the West. Some countries, though, are unsettled by China's strong growth. The roots of the current tension in the trade relations between China and, uh, and, in, the UN, uh, and the United States lie in the imposition of uh, rather irrational and, and uh, politically motivated trade tariffs on China uh, by the former uh, U.S. President Donald Trump. It's unfortunate that his uh, successor, uh, Joe Biden, uh, has not changed course. These tariffs are, are flawed. I think they are counterproductive. The introduction of China into into the global economy uh, has has uplifted many many countries. Between 2013 and 2018, uh, China uh, contributed 28% uh, of global growth. China is now uh, the largest trading uh, partner or top trade partner. More than uh, countries. The U.S. remains an important trade partner, but China is focusing its efforts on strengthening multilateral ties with Africa. China has dropped tariffs and custom duties for 33 of the poorest nations on the continent, 
It has also agreed to spend $10 billion on key projects in Africa, which will include technology and agriculture. The other element that makes the success of Africa, China, Africa trade, they will, for example, look at the backlog in an African country. If they find that an African country doesn't have a power station, they're happy to build a power station. If it's a matter of it doesn't have roads, or it doesn't have railroads, it doesn't have ports or harbors, China is happy to build those. And in return, negotiating deals to access commodities. According to China's Ministry of Commerce, China-Africa trade jumped over 40% between January and July 2021, reaching a value of $139.1 billion. Sumit Ranadu, CGTN, Johannesburg, South Africa. And indeed, China has developed strong trade relations with Africa. We spoke to a Zambian economist about the impact China has had in its 20 years at the World Trade Organization. Take a listen. China joined this body organization in 2001. And since then, what we've seen is that the Chinese have implemented a number of reforms. They've really opened up the economy and really come to the stage in terms of free trade at the global level. We know the importance of free trade. Uh, without free trade, goods cannot move, and therefore there should be reduction in these hindrances such as tariffs and non-tariff buyers. So the Chinese in that regard have played their part in trying to open up the economy to be able to have access to goods from outside their country through importing and reducing the tariff buyers and the non-tariff buyers. And then in the same regard, they've also been trying to gain market access, meaning that they're trying to penetrate or get into markets outside their own and export their products. And the story is there for all to see. Nigeria wants to see persons with disabilities actively participate in the running of public affairs in the country. The government is offering them up to a 10% involvement in governance. This was outlined at the Maiden National Disabilities Summit geared towards the inclusion of persons with disabilities in a post-COVID-19 world. CGTN's Kalech Emekalam reports. A massive turnout at Nigeria's first ever National Disability Summit in the capital, Abuja. The government and other stakeholders discuss ways to improve the lives of persons with disabilities. This comes amid concerns that they are one of the vulnerable groups hardest hit by the coronavirus pandemic. The COVID-19 compounded a lot of challenges to persons living with disabilities. The restrictions and then the um, protocols of COVID-19. Take for instance a person on wheelchair, has to wheel his chair and then he has to sanitize his hands. That means you're telling him to also sanitize the wheelchair because at every given time his hands will be touching the wheelchair. Where the cost of living a life as a normal person and living a life as a normal person with disability, you will find that the person living with disability requires much more resources to live normally as a human being. In 2019, Nigeria established a law prohibiting discrimination on the basis of disabilities. But those living with disabilities say not much has changed, despite the penalties recommended by the new law, including fines and prison sentences. Now the government is going a step further. It's pushing for the inclusion of persons with disabilities in governance and leadership. This is in line with the United Nations resolution of leaving no one behind. To ensure a 
minimum of 10% inclusion of persons with disabilities. The government programs and projects via the National Commission for Persons with Disabilities. Today, we gather here to launch yet additional achievements of this newly established institution. And this includes a disability registration and reporting system application, a formal launching of the Nigerian Sign Language Dictionary first edition, a five-year strategic plan of the Commission from 2022 to 2026, an accessible website. Nigeria can never move forward if some people are left behind, particularly those with disabilities. According to the Ministry of Humanitarian Affairs, there are 31 million persons living with disabilities in Nigeria and the figures are expected to rise with population increase. But the government says it would continue ramping up efforts to bridge the gap and create an enabling environment for persons with disabilities to give them a new lease of life. Kilichia Mekalam, CGT and Abuja, Nigeria. Well, let's now take a look at your business news. Here's what's ahead. South Africa's manufacturing production records its sharpest contraction in more than a year as factory output slumped in October. Africa is the nexus of enterprise and global business will tell you why it matters. From the mega investment projects to multi-billion dollar mergers and acquisitions. Africa today collects just in terms of revenues from taxes alone $545 billion. If you take 10% of that, and you devoted to the energy sector. Problem solved. All this on Global Business, weekdays at this time on CGTN. South Africa's manufacturing sector saw its sharpest contraction in over a year in October. That was the result of a mix of factors, including labor action and load shedding. Factory output slumped 8.9% year-on-year, according to data from Stats South Africa, hitting the worst level since August 2020. That was even worse than the 4.8% decline in July, when civil unrest tore through the provinces of Kwatulu Natal and parts of Hauteng. At the same time, South Africa was also in a level 4 lockdown as it battled a surge in COVID-19 infections. South Africa's economic recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic this year has been very uneven. Those riots in the middle of the year triggered a 1.5% contraction in quarter three, with trade, manufacturing and agriculture being the hardest hit. Well, Kenya's finance ministry has put off plans by the Kenya National Highways Authority to float a $1.3 billion infrastructure bond, citing the country's distressing levels of public debt. According to the Treasury Chief Administrative Secretary Nelson Gaishuhi, the decision has been arrived at following red flags raised by the International Monetary Fund about Kenya's fast-growing public debt load. Following a warning by the IMF about the sustainability of Kenya's debt, which is fast approaching $71 billion, the ministry said it cannot allow the roads agency to issue the bond. Kenya is currently in a three-and-a-half-year IMF program, which has focused on reducing the country's debt levels as one of its key performance targets. Data from the central bank shows that the Treasury has floated three infrastructure bonds since January. Zimbabwe's mind. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, after live from CGTN. 
And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast uh, for today. And uh, we've been broadcasting live from studios in downtown Detroit on Saturday, December 11th, uh, 2021. You'd like to have access to the program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network at talktalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. You can also read Pan-African Newswire at Pan-African news.blogspot.com I'm going to close out uh, with music of the legendary Paris who joined the sisters uh, this last past week uh, was born uh, in the city of Detroit in 1929 he died earlier this week uh, in New Jersey uh, at the age of 91 we're going to hear an album of uh, and released in 1960 entitled At the Jazz Workshop. Uh, the album is considered a classic uh, among the many contributions made uh, by Bill Harris. Uh, he's joined in a trio uh, with Sam Jones on bass, Lewis Hayes on drums. Uh, this is from the Riverside Record Label. This is Abayomi Zikaway signing off and have a beautiful week. <laughs>